Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 331. I am Tom Maluli, and I'm joined today by Tim Maluli and Brendan Maluli. Hey, guys. Hey. How's it going? Uh, so there's an article in Think Advisor, and it's it's pretty timely since we're into November now. We're closing in on Thanksgiving. It's a good time to talk about all of this so you have time to accomplish what they're talking about in the article before the year ends. It's called 10 Tax Planning Steps to Take before New Year's Eve. There are things that you can do before the end of 2020 to potentially lower your taxable income or you know, just pay less in, in taxes in general. And they ran through 10 things uh, and we kind of wanted to go through that list and share our thoughts on their list. Uh, the first one that they talked about, and I don't know if we'll uh, hit on each of these, but um, taking advantage of gifting to family members, uh, just as a reminder, you can gift to anybody $15,000 in a calendar year, or if you're married, that's $30,000 to any one person. So suppose you have three children and a husband and wife want to gift the maximum, they could actually gift 30000 to each of the three. That's $90,000 in gifts, which is really great. They also talked about doing gifts to 529 plans, which does allow for some expansion on the gifts. Basically, you can make a five-year gift all at once. You're stopped from making future gifts for that period of time, but you can dump it all out in one year. Yeah, I mean, if you could swing it and you're setting up a 529 account for a newborn uh, to front load that is just, I mean, wow. the, the benefit, if you can swing it, is yeah. more more compounding. So instead of uh, sending in money periodically over five years, you get it in at the very beginning, and that's five years of extra compounding on every dollar that, that you front load into there. I mean, yeah. it could be really great. There's tends to be a lot of questions that, that come from clients about gifting and, like, the tax repercussions. And, and so it's never taxable income uh, to the recipient of a gift. And it's not even taxable income to them if you're over this $15,000 threshold that we're talking. The $15,000 threshold really only comes into play when we talk about everybody's lifetime exclusion, um, which is the same number uh, right now that, that pertains to estate tax. And so if you go over that $15,000 threshold in a year, let's say you're not married and you give somebody 30. So $15,000 of that doesn't matter. The 15 that you went over your limit counts against your own lifetime exclusion, the person giving the gift. And so that basically just then lowers what you can exclude from your estate when you pass away. And for a lot of people with estate taxes, you know, the levels where they are now, it's not actually a big deal. And so you want to be cognizant of like these, these limitations. But at the end of the day, if you have a really great reason that you want to give a gift to somebody and it's not, it's not going to fit into that fifteen or $30,000 uh, limit for individuals or married couples, it's not the end of the world. And the estate tax exclusion that Brendan was referring to at the moment is $11 million. 
per person. Per right. person. Right. And so, so even and even where it was beforehand was not a huge issue for most people. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, over the span of my career, this estate tax exclusion has changed quite a bit and it will continue to change. We just have to be aware of where the thresholds are. I just want to spend a, a moment on the second point that they had about Maxing out your contributions to retirement plans and health savings accounts. We don't talk that much about health savings accounts, but 401ks and and other retirement plans, if you are under age 50, the maximum you can do uh, this year is 19,500. If you're over the age of, if you're 50 and over, uh, you can actually do the 19.5 plus an additional $6,500. So you can do $26,000 for a married couple now that are working and have the income to do it. That's 52 grand that you can put into a retirement plan. That is not small peanuts. It's a nice reduction off, off your income and, and, right a great, off the top. and a great boost to your retirement. Yeah, it is. I think a caveat to that though is, is making sure that, or not just maxing out your contributions just to get the maximum tax benefits I mean, obviously, you need to take into account if it makes sense for you to be putting your money into these accounts. Obviously, it's being tied up for retirement. So if you're under 50, you foresee needing the money in the future. Maybe think twice about how much you're putting into the account. But if you can swing it, then, yeah, maximizing is a good way to take advantage of those tax advantages. Kind of see the the HSA that they noted in there as as a similar story in the sense that like these accounts are supposed to let people defer money pre tax to then like use pre tax dollars again to pay for like medical costs. But if you're not in a situation where that is going to really be an issue, maybe you have good coverage or you're a healthy person, you can max this thing out and the money will continue growing tax deferred and it, it basically just becomes an extra retirement account for folks who can afford to not use that money for one expenses on the front end or two even medical expenses so if you can clear that and you're comfortable and you have access to one of these things could could be another way to to lower your taxable income uh, and compound for the future there's a lot of benefits to these health savings accounts i think the the biggest drawback at the moment is that their dollar thresholds are small compared to 401ks and retirement plans. But if you're an individual filer, this year you can put away $3,550 on a pre-tax basis into a health savings account. If you're a, a, a fam, for family coverage, that amount is doubled, it's $7,100. Now, unlike retirement plans, if, where if you're over 50, you can put more into it. With an HSA, if you're over 55, you can add an additional $1,000. So if you're 55 and over, you can put in 81 up to $8,100 for family coverage. Not nothing. Uh, you have to be able to do it. I really think that the winning formula for HSAs is put the money away with the idea that you're not going to touch it for several years, five years or more. And that's, yeah. you know, it's a luxury it. that many do not have. Right. But if but if you're in a position to take advantage of that, it can, it can be really great and a nice, a nice boost. I think kind of building off of that, going back to like making sure that you can swing all of these things, the fifth point jumping ahead a little bit was prepare for unexpected, unexpected expenses with a liquidity plan. Pretty much, you know, what we talk about a lot here, having your cash flow plan in place 
and they made the point to say without disrupting your current uh, investments, which I think is huge. We talked a lot over the last couple weeks about disrupting compound interest and taking money out of the market for whatever reason. You know, 2020 was a good example of needing to have a, a cash flow plan in place, making sure that you can make ends meet without having to completely unravel any progress you've made in your investment accounts. Yeah, I, I took that as just a reminder, like we make one pagers for a lot of our clients, cash flow, balance sheet, and, and just take a look at all of that because they are you know two parts of, of your financial picture that are, are super important because within that you can see, hey, how, how is cash flow done? Can we update these numbers? Approaching year end, you know, nothing special about doing it then, you can do it anytime, but as, as good a time as any to take a look. Um, and then also balance sheet, assets and liabilities, how have those changed over the course of the year? And hey, what if, uh, what if the income number from the cash flow side of here was, was impacted like what we saw earlier this year for a lot of folks? What could I use on my balance sheet to get myself through? And, and hopefully that money is not money that's in stocks and you have a lot of stops along the way there between emergency funds and you know the article talked about lines of credit you know like maybe home equity or uh even like you know, securities based loan like you have all these stops along the way and then trying to rank them in terms of like how how much would i want to rely upon these things because there are some that i would want to rely upon a lot more than others in a perfect world the emergency fund is just cash right but right. Uh, there are probably other stops along the way too I think the idea of having a liquidity plan or an emergency stash has never been more evident than this year with the pandemic and the recession. A lot of people who never expected to be out of work were suddenly out of work without warning at different times through the year. So it's and I mean we saw we saw it affect people across all all different types of earning levels too. There's been articles about how low earning jobs have been hit really hard, but also people that make Ugh. six figures are have been squeezed out struggling really yeah. hard too. And it just goes to cash flow. You know, it doesn't really matter how much money you're bringing in. If you're spending all of it, something like this happens, you stop working, that six figure salary goes away, you're going to be in trouble too. So. I'd, I'd argue that with lifestyle inflation, meaning the more you make, the more you spend, somebody who's out of work, who uh, is used to living and existing on $50,000 a year could be in a lot better position than somebody who makes $150,000 a year because they're more prepared or used to it. Bridging the gap when your income's disrupted off of a smaller base may be easier. It's going to mean less less debt to rack up or less of an emergency fund that you'll ultimately need. And so it's all about that gap between what, what you're spending and uh, what what you bring home uh, that that ultimately matters, not necessarily the headline number. Yeah. And I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the most frequent issues that we discuss, especially with new clients, is the lack of an emergency fund. We've got clients that have retirement accounts, and then they've got maybe some investment accounts, but Nowhere on the balance sheet do we see this is my emergency stash. And so it's become kind of a, a good opening question with a lot of folks is where is the, what do you consider on this balance sheet, the emergency fund? And it's eye-popping 
to hear some of the responses. Well, I've got a, a $10,000 credit line on my credit card that I can tap into, or I've got a home equity line that I could tap into. Those things go away during bad economic periods. Mm. They're not guaranteed. And other folks have money in the market that they say, well, if I need to, I can dip into some of my stocks. But you know, as we found earlier this year, when you go to tap into them, when you need them the most, they may be down 30 or 40%. Mm. That's a problem. Yeah. And I so think, as, as, all... as ugly as it seems, we see a lot of balance sheets that are built upside down where there's no base there's or very little of an emergency base. I think it's a lot of that stems from people and people in our industry shaming people for like having money in the bank That's with, with interest say. rates where they've been for the for the majority of the past decade. People get shamed for keeping too much at the bank. And certainly we've seen instances where people have excessive amounts of cash at the bank and and that can happen for a multitude of reasons but i think people in our in our line of work are so eager to get every dollar folks have invested under their management that sometimes they tell them to put money into investment accounts or something that shouldn't actually be there yeah and it should be kept at the bank and sometimes they do tell them the right thing and folks just don't want to listen because they they think themselves that it's a poor decision to leave money at the bank when it's earning zero or half a percent or something like that and and they see that opportunity cost as just too much to withstand yeah and i don't think it is (laughs) yeah and i think you know people in our industry you're not going to get on tv or sell a lot of books if you tell people to have money in the bank so i mean from a young age i feel like a lot of people just hear you know once once you get a career to start investing as soon as you can start investing as soon as you can make your money work for you it's true but there are steps you need to take before you get there and a lot of people just gloss over those steps and so you can't really blame some individuals because they were never told to have an emergency fund or or have money in the bank i know i've i've had some conversations with uh people this year not clients but i'm sure you guys have also gone through the same experience where this year under the cares act you can actually take money out of your retirement plan. Yes, it is going to be taxable. They are waiving the penalty that you would normally have if you're taking money out of a retirement account before 59 and a half. But some of the reasons that I'm that I've been hearing are we don't have an emergency fund or we have too much credit card debt or we have credit card debt that we need to get rid of or uh, I'm actually encouraged to hear that people did save money and now they're using this opportunity to rebalance the balance sheet a little bit uh, and hopefully get headed on some better some better habits. Yeah, unfortunately, like Tim said, no, nobody wants to read the article about setting up an emergency fund. They want to read the five hot stocks for next week. And I think I think that <laughs> yep. that proves itself when when we see folks balance sheets uh time after time the cash flow and balance sheet really work hand in hand like you were talking about and the next point that they had was about your balance sheet and how you need to review not just the assets the article was more talking about people that own their own businesses um their their business balance sheets but i think it can apply to everyone i feel like people get caught up in counting their assets and what they have Uh, and sometimes neglect what they owe, especially when it comes to credit card debt or other types of debt. Maybe, you know, the interest rates are really high on them or there are different different ways that, you know, you could be paying it off or paying off more. 
Um, so there's there's two sides to that balance sheet. There's the assets and then there's the liabilities. So I think it's important to pay attention to both sides of that. You can live in a million dollar house and have no equity. Right. And if the value of your house goes down in the future, you'll have negative equity. Another component that, that we usually build into cash flow and balance sheet for folks would be, you know, the starting with gross income and then getting all the deductions out of the way to the net income. And the fourth quarter of a year in general, I think is a great time to review your tax situation because things can change over the course of a year. And you, if, if you're doing this in September, October, November, you still have a little time before the end of the year. So if you review your tax situation, see what you're projected to owe. If there's a big discrepancy or you're not on track, you can kind of write write the ship or at least have the heads up that that's going to be coming uh, come yeah. April when you go to file your taxes. And in fact, after October 15th, I think it's a great time to touch base with your accountant if they do this kind of tax planning work for you or an advisor if, if they're the ones who are who are doing this sort of work because they're less busy filing returns for people in the cases uh, of, of accountants and tax preparers and, and they can give you the attention and they'll be happy that you did this too because I think a lot of them, an aspect of their jobs they don't enjoy is telling people in April, hey, you have a big tax bill because that's not necessarily the accountant or preparer's fault no. uh, at all. Even though it's, a lot of people seem to think that it is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So they have to be the, the messenger of the bad news. And so to discuss this in the fourth quarter, when you have time to change where you're headed or at least have a heads up that you should start setting aside money because you're going to owe X come April. I think this is a great time to look at stuff like that. I, how many times have we heard people say, I don't want to use that accountant anymore. I had to pay too much in taxes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not really their fault. It's not their fault. <laughs> Especially when, what is it now, like 90% of, of people take the standard deduction since the 2017 yeah, tax changes? Yeah, I think it's really a withholding story or some, you know, dramatic kind of uh, income event or life event that changes your filing status or or what bracket you're going to be in and you never accounted for the changes uh, that especially in a year like this where folks have been tapping into things like retirement accounts for for cares act distributions i mean if you did that and you didn't speak to your accountant your tax preparer uh beforehand i mean you, know, you can kick the can and find out in april or, or you could find out now and it'll probably be pretty close i mean we can't predict what will happen over the next two months either but you know we're pretty close to the end of the year so you should have a very good idea of where you're ending up for taxes so uh don't delay take yeah. a look yeah speaking of people taking standard deductions uh, versus itemizing uh there is a part of the cares act that was rolled out this year due to the virus where they uh did discuss charitable giving and uh, this is something that I've shared with uh, a couple of organizations and charities that I'm involved in as well. I passed this message along to them recently. Prior to 2020, under the new tax act, so in 2018 and your 2019 taxes, typically if you were an itemizer for your taxes, you could deduct somewhere between 20% up to as much as 60% of the gift uh, of of your adjusted gross income in charitable contributions, donations uh, that you're making. And if you were someone who did not itemize last year, well, CARES Act is opening a window for these folks this year. And I think it's important that not only individuals are aware of it, but the organizations 
are also aware of it. If you were not an itemizer last year, this year you can take a up to $300 deduction without even getting involved in itemizing. This is above the line. Uh, what they right. call above the line. Yeah. Did you make a charitable contribution? You can deduct up to $300 and you don't have to get involved with itemizing whatsoever. So that's a nice gift, not only for you to deduct off your taxes, but also for the, the organization or the charity that you're giving to. However, for folks that do itemize, this year, because of the CARES Act, they can now deduct up to 100% of their adjusted gross income in charitable contributions. That is eye-popping in terms of the amount of money that can be gifted. And if you're in that fortunate position, Boy, this is the year to do it. Yeah, definitely. I also think an important point, they made the distinction to say that it needs to be uh, recorded and received, your charitable gift, uh. by December 31st, uh, which is a Thursday this year. I would bring that up because don't call to make the donation on Monday of that week. You know what I mean? People, like People do. Like, yeah. Right. We've gotten calls from people to make charitable gifts or contributions to their accounts on December 29th for the end of the year and it's like won't happen. This is why we're recording this and giving it out to you guys now in the beginning of November so you have time yeah. to do this uh, ahead of time. Don't leave it to the last minute because it just makes everything stressful. Yeah, usually uh, brokerage firms will will request that you get all of these requests for gifts in by December 15th. But Every year, we have folks that reach out to us December The week in between 29th. Christmas and yeah, New Year's. December we'll get, 30th. Yeah. yeah. So Try I, not to do that. Yeah, the organization needs to have the money in hand and record it on or before the 31st. It, it, while we're talking about it, it's always important to remember to select the right kind of gift to give. As a general rule of thumb, give cash to people and give appreciated assets to organizations, to charities. Bingo. Not much more to yeah, add give on cash top. To, That's it. Give yep. cash to people. Yeah. And then give, you know, some kind of securities or assets, something that's appreciated. Because you can deduct the fair market value of whatever you're giving, even though you bought a stock years ago. Right. It's way up. You're basically turning the tax situation over to a nonprofit. They don't have tax. Right. So or you, or you could be if you're giving a stock to somebody that you've held forever, they're inheriting your cost basis, which it's, is not advantageous to them. It's, it's not a gift. Listen, it's still it's. I mean, it still is, but uh, it's going to be less of one after they net out the capital gains tax they're going to have to pay on it. So very true. Yeah. So one of the last points that they made in the article uh, was to consider harvesting tax losses. Um, so that's, you know, if if you own a stock or a fund that you have losses on. Uh, you can sell it and use those towards, you know, lowering your taxes. Review everything that's happened over the course of this year, too. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to be done with the investments that you're discussing that have gains or losses. But to, yeah. if you have taxable investments in a brokerage account or joint account or something like that, it just makes sense to, on a yearly basis, manage those for the fact that taxes are going to be due on them. So it could mean moving on from something for a brief period of time that, that, that you then buy or, or uh, replace with something similar. It doesn't mean that you're done with it, but just to be smart, like, I mean, ultimately, if you have taxable assets, you want to end up with as little a tax bill at the end of the investing period when you're going to consume uh, 
as possible because what you eat at the end of that is the after tax, after everything else number. And so if you've got a giant capital gain in something, you can work over the years to slowly chip away at that to make your ultimate liability at the end not as great. Great. All good tips. Uh, if you've got questions on these, just reach out to us. We'd be happy to walk you through the finer details of these. But that's going to wrap up episode 331. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will catch up with you on the next episode.